Tech lost 82 to 27. But they didn't score 100, so that's pretty good. During the Ole Miss LSU halftime, I don't know if you guys or anybody are watching that, uh, the announcer was came on and said, you know, the, one of the great things about this whole deal of, you know, TCU scoring 82 points against Tech is that the ba- TCU's basketball team only scored over 80 once all last season. And so they all laughed, ha, 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 funny, so funny. Yeah, we're, we're bad. We got drummed. So let's just, I get it. Keep all your jokes to yourself. We're fine. Especially after I made fun of all the A&M guys. Ha, ha, 59 to 0 last week. Yeah, that was awesome of me. So the Lord is punishing me. That's fine. Um, we're terrible, but our coach is really good looking. So we got that going for us. Um, so anyway, get that out of the way. We're done with that. We're moving on. We are in week eight of this journey through the book of Acts. Sort of started as a open-ended kind of exploration, a verse-by-verse movement that will sort of take us through what I believe to be more than a book. I really deeply believe that it's the call of the Christ follower, that as followers of Jesus, this book becomes a mandate for our lives. It becomes the call of who we are as individuals and the call of who we are as a church. And we've sort of explored it at length, and we're just going to kind of keep going with it. And we're into week eight. And I told you the past few weeks that this section that makes up chapters three and four of the book of Acts is One of my favorite pictures in all of scripture, it's incredibly beautiful, and it's not beautiful in the sense that you might be thinking, you know, kind of what beauty is, but it's beautiful because it's completely counter-cultural. It's it's the the kind of um, the juxtaposition between the cross and culture. It's irreverent, and it's challenging, and it's convicting, and its imagery is really powerful. And so for the past few weeks, we've sort of been exploring this situation that happens over a 24-hour period where Peter and John are headed to the temple to pray. Just like all the good kind of religious people in those days, they went, even as Christ followers, to go to the temple and pray and to teach people there. And as they were headed to the temple, they walked past the gate, and these folks had brought this, this handicapped person, this crippled person, right there on a mat by the gate, and he was begging, hoping to get money. And you remember from a few days ago, or a few weeks ago, the story goes that Peter and John stopped, and they looked at this crippled person, and they said, look, we can't help you with anything financially. But what we can give you, right, is better than that. So in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And they reached down and grabbed his hand. And immediately the guy's ankles became strong. And he just bursts running into the temple, dancing and screaming and shouting and praising God. Peter and John follow him into the temple. And all these people that are there to pray and to worship come running from all places. Because this guy they've walked past, this crippled person that they've gone by every single day, to go and pray in the temple, was now running and jumping. I mean, you can imagine their astonishment. And so the scene that we explored last week was the one where Peter and John were standing before this unbelievably astonished crowd, and this crippled person, now healed person, was leaning on their shoulders, right? And Peter was giving this incredible speech, the second sort of sermon speech we see Peter give. And he's speaking to this crowd, and he's talking about the gospel and how it changes everything. And basically what he says is like, look, you took this Jesus of Nazareth, who, who was the one that our forefathers talked about, the very author, author of life, the holy and righteous one, the son of God, and you betrayed him, and you handed him over, and you chose Barabbas, the murderer, over him, and you killed the author of life, right? And he tells this kind of convicting speech, this crowd, and he says, but God 
raised him from the dead. And then he went into this sort of kind of call to repentance. And last week we explored the, really what we believe to be the blessings that come from repentance that Peter lays out. You know, that when we truly repent, our sins are wiped out, that we can enter into times of refreshing from the Lord, and that we will be a part of the redemption of all things. And we explored that kind of in depth and at length. Well, this morning we pick up in that exact moment that Peter is speaking. So all these things are, even though we've spread them out over three or five weeks that we'll be kind of doing this, they're all happening in a matter of moments. So I don't want you to lose track of that, that these things are actually happening kind of sequentially right after another, and and this is all happening within the same few moments, all right? And so we're going to pick up this morning right in that scenario where Peter and John are standing there with this now once crippled, now healed beggar, and he is proclaiming this truth to the crowd and things take a turn for the interesting. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to open to Acts chapter 4. And uh, before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you that your word is living and that it is active and that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. And you tell us it penetrates, uh, Father, joint and marrow, soul and spirit. And God, I pray that you would teach us this morning through your word and that you would reveal truth to us. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning, to whatever he's doing in you, that he would instruct you or convict you or encourage you or just whatever it is. Just God, teach me this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or around you. Maybe this is kind of an odd practice to you, but just be in the habit of praying for somebody else, other people on a Sunday morning. Pray that God would move in their life. Lord, make your word come alive to us, reveal truth to us. God, challenge us when we need to be challenged. Encourage us when we need to be encouraged. Equip us when we need to be equipped, Father. But teach our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So before we kind of dive into this, I'm not going to give a disclaimer because I don't, I don't really think I need to. But I will tell you that what we're going to explore this morning, if I can get all the way through it, which is the hope, um, is really culturally offensive. And it's offensive not so much because of its language or its imagery, but it's offensive because of what it teaches. And what we're going to see is that culture is opposed to the gospel for a couple of really specific reasons. And the reason it's offensive is because it promotes an absolute picture of something that most of us don't want to buy into. And culture pushes back at that picture of absolute truth. And so what we're going to explore this morning is one of those things where culture, both religious culture, Christian culture, and secular culture, bristle at the thought of the gospel. But what's really ironic is that these words of Peter's are actually life-giving and freeing. And culture will see them, religious culture and secular culture, will see them as intolerant and narrow and defiant. And so we're going to talk about some things this morning that that happened 2,000 years ago that are very relevant in our culture today. So I just want to lay that out there. So if you've got your Bible, let's open to chapter 4. We'll go 1 through, try and get all the way down through 21. In fact, we have to get down through 21, so we're going to do it. All right, so here's the... The, the, the situation. Now remember, they're all standing in the middle of the temple uh, courtyard there, and it's Peter and John and this crippled beggar and this massive crowd, all right, huge crowd that's gathered around, and Peter has been preaching the gospel to this crowd. And it's this in one. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were still speaking to the people. 
And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, because it was, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas and John and Alexander and other men from the high priest's family. And they had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if, you are, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how, this was healed, how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel... It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. This man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they, could not, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody uh, living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further, and among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves... Whether it's right for, in God's sight, to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And, further th- and with further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Okay, so to try and get through this backstory a little bit, let me give you a little bit of, of background about what's happening. So as Peter and John are standing there preaching in the temple, says that the Sadducees, right, and the chief priests, they come running up to stop them. Now, probably doesn't have too much to do with our story, but I want to give you a little bit of background. There were five kind of ruling or or social religious parties in Israelites' history at that time, right? There were the Pharisees who we know about that were sort of the, um, they were really the keepers of the oral tradition, the keepers of the law. There were the Sadducees. They were aristocrats. They came from the right families, Um, The common person really, believe it or not, actually kind of connected better with the Pharisees because they were sort of working class businessmen, right? So the common person actually connected better with the Pharisees, which is kind of ironic considering how the Pharisees saw themselves as sort of better than everybody else. But the Sadducees were aristocrats. And, and between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they sort of made up most of the religious ruling council called the Sanhedrin, which is about 70 or 71 ruling people, depending on what you read. But there were three other parties. There were the scribes, and they were in charge of kind of keeping all this stuff written down, if you will. And they were keepers of all that was sacred. There were the Essenes, and the Essenes was a group of people that felt like they were so religious and so strict in their observance to religious law that they moved outside of town and cloistered themselves off. And they lived separately, and they had very strict religious life. And then you had the Zealots, and the Zealots were militant extremists. They were willing to fight and overthrow and moved underground movements to overthrow Rome and all those kind of things. But those are sort of the five kind of leader parties. Well, in, in most of Scripture, what we hear about are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the scribes. Well, the Sadducees and Pharisees really didn't get along real well, right? They had some very different beliefs. And what's really funny is, is what united the Sadducees and Pharisees was their common goal to crucify or to basically uh, arrest and craft Jesus crucified. So they become somewhat aligned after that. 
but they had two very different kind of views on theology and on life. The Pharisees believed that the oral tradition was the same as God's uh, kind of given law and word. Now, the oral tradition was law that was created by the kind of Pharisee movement. So what it did, it gave depth to God's law. So if God says, don't work on the Sabbath, okay, that is one of the Ten Commandments. The Pharisees said, what is the Sabbath and what does it mean not to work? And they created an entire law structure around what you could do that defined work. You could tie this kind of knot, but not that kind of knot. You could take X number of steps, but not this number of steps. You could pick up so many pounds, but not that many pounds. I mean, they wrote a full law on every single thing that God had commanded, defining it out. And they deeply believed that their oral tradition, right, their articulated version of what that law meant was equal to God's very own command. Well, the Sadducees didn't believe this at all. So they vehemently opposed on those two ideas. The Sadducees believed that there was no resurrection from the dead. They believed that there was no afterlife, that once you died, your soul died, and that was it, and therefore you needed to live every single moment today, right? Pharisees, of course, didn't believe that. They saw that God gave a, better, a bigger picture. They saw that God was eternal and so on and so forth. So these two ruling religious groups that made up this ruling council called the Sanhedrin were vehemently at odds with each other of how they believed. Now, the Sadducees were typically the ones that were involved in sort of the policing of the temple and the temple guard. And, and here are Peter and John and standing up, and they are teaching, right, about Jesus and about the resurrection in Jesus of the dead. And, of course, the Sadducees, as we'll talk about more in a minute, come running over, right? And they've got a whole bunch of people with them. They've got the temple guard, and there was a, a police force there that guarded the temple so people wouldn't vandalize or steal or, or do whatever they would do. And they come running over. Right? And they're with them, and they're greatly disturbed, it says. It says, they came over, and they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching and proclaiming Jesus, uh, the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John because it was evening, and they put them in jail, right? Now, the, the law stated that if you had a trial of life and death, so which is what this was, when you did a miracle in the name of Jesus, who was crucified as a blasphemer, and then taught in his name, Right? That was a crime punishable of death because it was blasphemy. So when you have a crime that was punishable by death, the law stated that it had to, be, had to begin in daylight and had to end in daylight. Not sure why. Maybe they don't have lights at night or maybe nothing good happens after midnight. Teenagers, keep that in mind. Whatever. You know, the reality is that daylight hours are when the business happens. And so they seized them, and it was about 4 in the afternoon-ish, and temple life kind of stopped, right? So people would start heading back to their homes. And so they put Peter and John and this crippled, now healed beggar in jail till they could go to trial the next morning. Well, our story tells us that the Sanhedrin gathered early in the morning, which is the 70 or 71 uh, kind of ruling people. And they ask one singular question of Peter and John. And they basically say this, tell us, by what power or name did you do this? That's the question. So here they are, 70 of the highest of high religious leaders Peter and John, right, and this once kind of crippled, now healed beggar and all of his sort of beggar clothes there before this powerful council of religious leaders. So tell us, in what power or name did you do this? So then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, launches into his third, now sermon, only four chapters in. This one's much shorter and a little bit more pointed. Launches into this third speech. Right? By which he basically addresses the Sanhedrin and says, listen, if you want to know what name we did this in, but what power, I will tell you and I will tell you clearly. Right? It is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. 
And he stands before you healed, right? And he says this, and he quotes Psalm 118. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, it's really interesting. That psalm is really, really kind of fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, because we don't really understand the nature of capstones in our culture. I don't know how many guys have built rock walls or built rock buildings, but probably not many of us. But the whole idea of a capstone, by definition, is the very last stone that you put onto an assembled building project, whether it's the wall or whether it's the building. The last stone that you put on is the kind of crowning movement. It is the glory. It is the one by which when you set that on there, everybody that's working on it rejoices. It's one of those stones that you put on there and you're like, we're done. It is over and we celebrate and we walk out of here and everything's great. And, and the psalm says that the, the stone that the builders rejected would become the one that was the glory. Meaning that the one that the builders threw away, that society outcast, would become the crowning glory, the highest achievement. Right? And what's really significant about that is just 60 or so days prior to that, right before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he's teaching a gathered massive group of people in Jerusalem. Uh, before the Last Supper, it was a few days before that, and he says this exact thing. He quotes Psalm 118 about himself. He says, I am, right, the stone that the builders rejected. I am the capstone. There is a high probability that out of these 70 ruling elders that are still in Jerusalem 60 days earlier, they were present when Jesus was teaching at the temple, sharing the same story. The echo of that truth, that what you have tried to throw away, what you have rejected, has now become God's crowning glory and moments. This is what what, uh, what Peter says. And then he kind of launches into one of the most, most important verses in all of Acts. And I can't overstate how important this verse is to the theology of a Christ follower, right? But he says this, Acts 4.12. He says this, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So he basically says this, there is no other name by which salvation comes. It wasn't a crowd pleaser then, and it's not a crowd pleaser now. So the, the, the kind of ruling council is a little taken back. And they look at the courage of Peter and John. Because here's the thing, these guys are facing death. It's not like they were arrogant. I mean, they literally, as blasphemers, were facing death. And they saw their courage, right? Realized they were unschooled, ordinary people from Nazareth with weird accents. Fishermen and the like. And they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They couldn't explain it. But they took note that they had been with Jesus. But since they couldn't, they could see the man standing there that's healed, it says. And they couldn't kind of tell them that they didn't do it. They didn't know what to do. So they made them leave. They talked back amongst themselves. They got together and they said, what are we going to do? I mean, everybody in Jerusalem has seen this thing. It's miraculous. The guy is healed. We can't let this movement keep happening. I mean, we've got to stop it, right? I mean, they just had 2,000 more people. Now we're talking about 5,000 believers in and around the area. It's a threat to their very way of life. So they called him in, and they told him this. You can't speak or teach about Jesus anymore. Okay, this is what we're going to do. This is the punishment. Can't speak or talk about Jesus. And then Peter, of course, you know how that's going to go over with Peter, replies, judge for yourself today if we're supposed to believe you and obey you or, or God. We can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We just can't help it. And it says, with many other threats, which we would have loved to have heard, they decided how they were going to punish him, and then they let them go um, because the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old, which I don't know if that's just being mean to 40-year-olds but, or whatever, but that's why I'm 39 twice already. So 
uh, basically saying he's so close to death. I mean, he didn't do this on his own. It wasn't like all of a sudden he got better. He's 40. The dude's almost dying. So this had to be a miracle, right? So I don't know if we needed that whole thing thrown in there. But it's there. So it was just further evidence that God was at the helm and not people. All right. So all that story to get us to a couple of things. Why are the religious leaders so fired up? Why are they so incensed? This crippled person who they've walked by every day for years and years and years is now healed. And people are praising God. They are running around praising God for what he's done. Why are they so incensed? Right? What is the problem with the gospel? Probably the better question is what is the cultural problem with the gospel? Because really that's what's going on. The religious leaders are so fired up, so angry. They're so kind of moved towards this idea that Peter and John need to be punished and are wrong for speaking these things, that this thing happened. Why is this happening and what is the cultural problem with the gospel? We see a couple of things in this text that I want to draw your attention to that I think really are fascinatingly similar to the way our culture is today. So here's what we see. We see that the gospel at its core is anti-religion. And I mean religion in the terms of systems that are created by the minds and the hands of people. So the gospel at its core is anti-religion. If you read the, if you read scripture, you'll see it over and over again. Now you might be sitting there going, now how can the gospel be opposed, right? If to the religion, if God Himself created Judaism and He set these things up and He made it, how can God be anti-religion? Well, there's sort of a yes and no answer to that. What God created, man, very in his, kind of the way man does, takes and turns and perverts and inserts their own images and their own selfishness and their own ideas and their own idolatry, right? Paul tells us this. He says that the chief sin of humankind, this is in Romans chapter 1, this chief sin of humankind is that we take the pure and the true and the beautiful revelation of God that truth, and we exchange it for a lie and turn and worship idols. He tells us that that is the chief sin of humanity. That we take the truth that God has established, revealed to us and given us, and we take that and we exchange it for a lie and turn to idols. Scripture, as you read it, you will see that God is vehemently against religion when it comes to systems that are created at the hands of people. And the gospel in its very nature threatened religious systems because the gospel in its very nature was a person. We see this come about in two kind of specific ways. The Sadducees come running over and they are distressed for two reasons, right? Did you see it there in verse 2? I kind of mentioned it we were going through it. They were distressed for two reasons. The first one is this. comes in verse 2. They were disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, number one, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the Sadducees are fired up for two reasons. One, the apostles were teaching. In those days, you couldn't just be some Joe Schmo off the street that wanders in the temple and begins to teach and begins to do the miraculous. These were things that were carved out for people in the right kind of genetic lines. These were things that were carved out, and from a Sadducee standpoint, from the families you were born into. These were things that were given to rights to certain people, not everyday random people from Nazareth that could walk into the temple and proclaim with authority truth and do miracles. But the apostles were teaching, which was unheard of. 
The Sadducees believed that this was their thing. The Pharisees believed that only they had the right to create this oral tradition. The scribes believed that only they had the right to write it down and hold it was sacred. The Essenes believed that only they had the true religion. They moved outside of town to prove it. And the Zealots believed that they would die for what only they believed in. You have two ordinary people from Nazareth, a fisherman and another guy, doing miracles and preaching an authority, and it threatened the religious system. It wasn't just who it was, right? But it was the fact that they didn't fit in this understanding of the religious system that man had taken from God and perverted to fit themselves. So what does the gospel do? Jesus comes and dies so that we can have access to God ourselves. The temple and the curtain, or the uh, curtain and the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, from God to man, giving us free access to holy creator, mighty God, that we no longer have to walk through created systems to have access to God. Instead, we can know God because of Jesus' life and death, that he covered our sin, that Peter and John can stand up and proclaim truth because the system right? is a person now. So they're vehemently opposed. To, they're also vehemently opposed to what they're teaching. Remember, they are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe this. Here are the apostles, and now 2,000 more people are believing this thing that they're talking about, that Jesus is the resurrection, that there is a life after death, that if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He covers our sin, and we have access to eternal life with God, And that is real. And that Jesus is not dead, but that God raised him from the dead, thus conquering death and giving us life. And the Sadducees were appalled because the teaching of Peter and John opposed what they had built their religious structure upon. The gospel in its core is opposed to systems created by people and exchanges those systems for the person of Jesus Christ. But the reason we're so incensed by it, even in our own culture today, is because we like our systems because they give us order and power. Even our church systems today, they give us order and power. The gospel at its very nature is anti-religion. It is anti-systems created at the hands of man and pro-person of Jesus Christ. The second really cultural issue that we see is that the culture sees the gospel as intolerant. The culture sees the gospel as intolerant. Acts 4.12, the hinge verse in the entire book of Acts, makes a pretty radical and profound claim. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Meaning, there is only one way to salvation. Now, it would be one thing maybe if, if we're just seeing it there, and you might be able to say, yeah, but it's just there. But Jesus himself actually says it. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. One of the important and dynamic principles of Christian faith and life is that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Culture sees this as intolerant, right? Because prevailing religious culture, even in those days and even now, is this. That whatever you believe in, as long as you're sincere about it, will get you to heaven. Thus saying that all God really cares about is that we are people of faith. And literally, what kind of faith? That we just have faith. If you read scripture, 
There is nothing in Scripture that is more vehemently opposed to this thought than what we see God doing throughout the course of redemptive history. The culture will tell you that's intolerant, that there can't be just one way. So R.C. Sproul, who's a theologian and, and sort of teacher, uh, kind of tells this story. And I've I, I read it, and I want to read part of it to you because I think it's really powerful. And it gives a perspective on this. Is this really intolerant? Okay, so if Jesus is the only way to heaven, it, it, is that really religious intolerance? Because it's why culture hates Christianity and why culture hates Christians. It's why the Romans hated Christians. The Romans hated Christians and persecuted Christians, not because they believed that Jesus was the way, but they, because they believed that Jesus was the only way. The Romans were okay with that. They just didn't want you telling them that their gods didn't get them there also. Culture sees this as intolerant. Well, R.C. Sproul tells this story where he says he was in college and he was in class and one of his professors who knew he was a believer looks at him in front of the whole class and says, Mr. Sproul, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And he kind of goes to this long backstory about how he kind of fidgeted and tried not to answer and covered his mouth and did all this. But eventually she pins him down. He says, yes, ma'am, I do. And she says, that's the most ridiculous, intolerant, narrow-minded, bigoted way of thinking I've ever heard. And she lays into him. After class is over, he kind of walks down front and she's standing there at the, at the front shaking everybody's hand and whatever. And, and, uh, and she says, I, I was pretty hard on you today. He said, yes, ma'am, you were. And she said... She basically says, I'm sorry, but I just can't understand how an educated person can really believe in such a narrow-minded way of thinking. And so then he records this. I want to read it to you because it's, it's really powerful. He records, this is what I said to my teacher. He says, can you believe that I could be foolish enough, right, even as an educated person, to come to the conviction that Jesus is at least one way to God? And she says, yeah, I could understand that. And he says, then I, I told her what Jesus said about himself. He said that Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, then I looked at her and I said, what would be more arrogant than a disciple of Jesus challenging his Lord's teaching on the way to salvation? I believe it because he said it. And she said, yeah, I can see that, but I don't get it. How can you believe in such a narrow God, a narrow and intolerant God? And this is what he says. This is what I want you to hear. He says, for the sake of argument, Suppose that once upon a time there was nothing, no universe. The only thing in existence was God himself. So God created everything. And from all creatures he made, he took one and he stamped him with his divine image and blessed mankind and called them into mirror his righteousness. Yet soon after that they believed the serpent who gave them the promise that they would be as great as God. They were involved in a cosmic revolt from the outset. Would God have been perfectly just to simply destroy all of mankind? And she said, yeah, I suppose so. And he said, but he didn't do that. Instead, he gave them a promise of mercy and forgiveness. He promised a Messiah that would come and bear their sins for them. Later, he called people out of darkness, out of slavery. They had become impotent because of their mightiest ruler in the world, the Pharaoh. God made them his people and gave them his law, of which was exclusive. One exclusive command, you have no other gods before me. And later they bowed down before other gods and other idols and the rest of the pagan deities of their day. But God still didn't destroy them. Instead, he sent them prophets and called them to come back to him as a father calls his wayward child to come back. But then he greeted, they greeted the prophets with stones and they killed them all. Finally, to show his great love, God sent his eternal, eternal second person of the Trinity. He sent his only son and let him take on the cloak of human flesh and live in the midst of corruption and endure the punishment on the cross that the whole world deserved. And he ordered his son to the people who were hostile towards him and they killed him. 
Nevertheless, God says that if you'll just put your trust in his son, he will honor him and he will forgive every sin you have ever committed. He will give you everlasting life in a place where death is exiled, in a place where there is no night, no sin, no pain, no harm. He will give you joy and happiness such that no creature has ever experienced. All you have to do is honor his son and him alone. And I told that to my teacher. And then I asked her, after hearing all that, could you still stand before God and say, that's a very nice story, but what's the big deal about Jesus? You haven't done enough. Why didn't you give us 20 saviors? Would any of us ever dare to say that before Almighty God? that you haven't done enough. And I find that remarkable because if we really look at the kind of picture of redemptive history, we don't see God as intolerant. We see God as filled with incredible grace for broken and sinful humanity who has given us a way to not only access him, but to access true abundant life here and now and eternal life in heaven. See, culture has a problem with the gospel. Because it threatens our created systems of power and comfort. And it threatens our picture of comfortable religious pluralism. And it's seen as intolerant. But the question is, is it really? So, moving on, because I need to get through some of these other things. So this is where culture stands. But there's something really different about Peter and John, right? The, the, The Sanhedrin looks at these guys after they kind of aired these problematic things here. And they're blown away. They're blown away by the powerful words. But more so, they couldn't explain it. They were astonished. They were ordinary, unschooled men from Nazareth. Really an uneducated region where people spoke with funny accents. And they had no explanation. And you know what they did? They just took note that they had been with Jesus. That was all they could come down to. Like, we don't know how this has happened. We don't know how this miracle happened. We don't know the authority in which Peter's preaching. But all we know is that they've been with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but no one has ever looked at my life and say, man, Trev, you, you must have really been spending some time with Jesus. They look at me and say, man, you must really be eating burritos, or hey, you're really dodging that shaving thing, or whatever. Like, but they never look at me and are like, man, I don't have any explanation, but you must have been with the Lord. What if that became the desire of every Christ follower? was not to reflect Jesus. But instead, to have the only explanation for the reason your life is different is that you must have been with this radical Jesus. That became our our goal, that people would look at us and go, I have no explanation. You live differently, you think differently, you talk differently, you are different. The only explanation I have is that your life mirrors that of Christ in a really remarkable way, in a way that I can only say you must have been with Jesus. So they send them out, right? And then they issue this cultural mandate, which is really kind of powerful. I mean, they basically, it's not like they didn't have power. I mean, this council had the right to kill these two men. They bring them back in and they give them a cultural mandate. They say, look, from now on, this is exactly how this is going to go and you can thank us that we're not killing you. But you are no longer allowed to speak or talk about Jesus. You can't speak in his name and you can't talk about Jesus. And that is the mandate. Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment. This is the highest court. This is the court that has the right to have you executed. It's not like you have somebody at work that says, hey, you shouldn't talk about Jesus. This is a a kind of a a mandate from all those that have power. And they look at you and they look at Peter and John. They say, you can no longer talk about Jesus. If you do, we will haul you back in here and have you executed. That's the power that came in the statement. No longer can you talk about, 
or talk in or speak in the name of Jesus. That's powerful. That's the mandate. So then what's the gospel response? Well, we remember Peter stops and he just says, listen, you guys should know this. You've got to judge for yourself whether it's right for us to obey you or to obey God. For we can't help talking about what we've seen and heard. Now, you've got to imagine that the words of the Great Commission are ringing in these guys' ears. It wasn't that long ago, 60 days or so, right? And Jesus had looked at them all, the disciples gathered right there on the side of the mountain. He gives them the Great Commission. He says, listen, go and tell everyone, the world, right? Go and proclaim to them. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. In other words, teach them about me. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And you have this kind of cultural, if you will, dilemma. Don't ever talk about Jesus and always talk about Jesus. And they're sitting right in the middle of it. If we talk about Jesus, we're going to get arrested and killed. If we don't talk about Jesus, we're disobeying the Lord. I don't know how many of us would ever really be caught in some kind of similar situation. None of us most likely will ever be in a place where our talking about Jesus is going to threaten our very life or our freedom or anything like that. But Peter's response is amazing because what he says is he's like, look, we're going to have to listen to the Lord, but, but more so, we can't help talking about it. Like it so changed us that even if I wanted to stop, I can't. It so changed me that I can't stop speaking about it. And although that you and I may never face that moment where, where society looks at us and says, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, we will kill you. The cultural pull is really similar. And it comes in the words of, of government or family or friends or whatever that say, please stop talking about Jesus or at least stop telling everybody that he's the only way. And as followers of Christ, we need to be prepared for a time Right? When we will have to choose to obey culture or to obey Christ. It's just the reality of what it means to be a Christ follower. There will come a time where we have to say, do I obey culture? And maybe not the laws of, of you know, Supreme Court or whatever, but culture, popular culture, society, even religious culture that says, no, look, all roads get there. Do I obey that culture and fall into that rhythm so that I can be seen as tolerant and non-offensive? Or do I obey Christ that says, look, it's not intolerance. Jesus loves us, and God loved us so much that he carved out this redemptive plan that we now have access to God. It's not elitism. It's open to everyone to obey Christ or to obey culture. My prayer for my life would be that I simply had the response of Peter, which is, I can't help it. I kind of wish I could, but I can't. Jesus so changed me that he's all I know.